U.S. Navy history arriving. Welcome back to the United States Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by my XO, Steven. Hey, everyone. Well, it took 72 hours, four pots of coffee, and more buckets than I care to count. But I think the recording software is no longer waterlogged. We'll find out. Don't jinx me like that, Captain. So today we're going to finish the Battle of Plattsburgh, and then we're going to move over to the Atlantic. Sounds good. Let's wrap that up. All right, let's get underway. So when we left off last time, the British had just set up their initial order. So that day, it was an autumn day. The wind was light and veritable, which means that Downey was unable to maneuver the confidence where he wanted it to be, which was across the head of McDowell's line. So, in consequence, Confidence suffered increasing damage from all the American ships, and he was forced to drop anchor somewhere between three and 500 yards from McDowell's flagship, the Saratoga. He then deliberately secured everything and then started firing a broadside which killed or wounded a fifth of Saratoga's crew so as you can imagine McDowell was stunned but then he recovered quickly and then Downey was killed a few minutes later so the sloop Chubb was also badly damaged and drifted into the American line where she Decided to surrender. Seems like the smart thing to do. Yeah. The brig Linnet, which was commanded by Prig, he reached the head of the American line and started raking fire on the USS Eagle. And at the tail end of the line, the sloop Finch, well, she wasn't able to reach station and anchor. So she was not hit very much at all. And she drifted aground on Crab Island and then surrendered under fire from six-pound guns of the battery manned by the invalids from the hospital. Remember the hospital? <laughs> I do remember the hospital. So half the British gunboats were also engaged very heavily at the end of the line, and their fire forced the weakest of the American vessels, which was the Preble, to cut its anchor and then drift away from the fight that Ticonderonda was able to fight them off, but it was engaged way too heavily to support the flagship. Now, the rest of the British gunboats, they, apparently they just didn't get into the battle and then later deserted. They're like, yep, you got this. <laughs> uh, well, apparently you don't. We're out. That seems like that's a court-martialable offense. I would think so, yes. Probably execution offense. Yeah, yeah. So about an hour later, the USS Eagle had the springs to one of her anchor cables shot away, and so was unable to reply to the HMS Linnet's raking fire. In response, the Eagle's commander cut the remaining anchor cable, which allowed the brig to drift towards the tail end of the line and then anchored again off the stern of the USS Saratoga and engaged the HMS Confidence. 
was it standard for brakes to have uh, multiple anchor cables just in the event of something like that happening since they were not really sail powered? All boats had extra anchors just because of how often they were lost. Oh. Yeah, that's some of the that's one of the things that you always brought more of was anchors. Okay. So not only sails for mending, but anchors. So that's effectively your spare tire and brake pad replacement. And also spare masts and spars as well. Hmm. So doing this maneuver allowed Linnet to rake the Saratoga. So both of the flagships had fought each other to pretty much a standstill. And after Dowie was killed and several other officers had been killed or wounded, Confidence's fire had become steadily less and less effective. But the Saratoga, well, almost all of her starboard side guns were put out of action. So McDowell ordered the bow anchor cut and hauled in the other anchors he had laid out earlier so they could spin Saratoga around. So this allowed Saratoga to bring its undamaged port side battery into the battle. And Confidence was unable to return fire. The surviving lieutenant tried to haul in the springs to his only anchor to make a similar maneuver. But he only succeeded in presenting a very vulnerable stern to the Americans. (laughs) So... Now they were helpless, and all they could do was surrender. So McDowell then hauled in his anchors to bring his broadside to bear on the HMS Linnet. Prigg sent a boat to Confidence to find that Downey was dead and that the Confidence had struck her colors. Linnet could also only surrender because she was battered almost to where she was sinking. So the British gunboats withdrew and then they weren't molested when they withdrew. So the surviving British officers boarded the Saratoga to offer their swords to McDowell as a token of surrender. So when he saw these officers, he said, quote, gentlemen, return your swords to your scabbards. You are worthy of them. So that was a nice thing. What a class act. Yeah. Commander Prigg and the other surviving officers later said that McDowell showed every consideration to the British wounded and prisoners. Many of the dead, which was not including the officers, were buried in unmarked mass graves on Crab Island, which was also the site of the military hospital during the battle, and they remain there today. Hmm. So both commanders would have seen the parallels of McDowell's anchorage on Lake Chaplin to that of the French under Vice Admiral Francis Paul Berets, opposing a British Rear Admiral Sir Horatio Nelson at the Battle of the Nile in Akbar Bay on August 1st, 1798. They would have seen this because a study of his battles was part of the professional knowledge expected of naval commanders. But McDowell did what Brace could not. He expected to take advantage of the winds on Lake Chaplin, which constrained Dowie's axis of approach. So because that pretty much everything worked to Nelson's advantage and proved disadvantaged to Dowie, 
The Battle of Lake Chaplin is sometimes also called the False Nile by the English. And that's because he tried to pull that maneuver that Nelson pulled, but utterly failed where Nelson succeeded. Yes. Okay. Hmm. And, and I know Nelson is often considered, like, among the top three naval commanders of all time. Yeah, he was very highly regarded. And he had recently passed away at the Battle of Trafalgar. So obviously British Empire, like, Navy, naval officers would be studying his tactics and strategies, you know, as soon as he was making a name for himself. Would Americans have been doing the same, or would the information not quite have been getting to us in that level of detail that we could study the tactics yet? It would depend on who survived and who was not captured to bring the information back. All right. And whether that person would be able to absorb and then tell the information to the people that needed it. So Provost's attack was supposed to happen at the same time the naval engagement. But, you know, Provost is Provost. So he was very slow to get started. <laughs> he did not issue orders to, to move until 1000, which was about an hour after the battle on the lake started. Dang morning parades. So the American and British batteries started a duel and the Americans gained a slight advantage. And Brisbane's, you know, his, his fake attack on the bridges, well, they were easily, easily repulsed. So then a messenger came by and notified Provost that Downey's ship had been defeated. And he realized that without the Navy to supply and support him, any military advantage gained by storming Plattsburgh would have been worthless. So he thought about it and decided that he had no option but to retreat. And so he called off the assault. Robinson's brigade had been misdirected by some of the British staff officers and missed the ford. That was their objective. They were supposed to cross that. Yeah. Come up on the flank. So they had to retrace their steps. So he had eight companies of light infantry and drove the defenders back. So once they crossed the ford and they were preparing to advance, that's when they received the orders from Provost to retreat. So they were making their headway. They were doing their job. They were doing good. And then, oh, by the way, guys, we're leaving. Retreat. Yeah, you might want to fall back. We're, we're not sticking around for this. So the light company of the British 76th Regiment of the Foot had been fighting in advance of the main body of the army. So when they heard the bugle call to retire, they were, it was too late. They were surrounded and cut off by overwhelming American numbers of militia. So Captain John Purchase, who was commanding the company, was killed in the act of waving a flag of truce. He used his white waistcoat and then three officers and 31 ranks of the 76th were captured and they ended up suffering one dead and three wounded. Major General Brisbane, he protested the order of retreat, but he complied. So they began the retreat back to Canada when darkness fell. Now the British soldiers, they were ordered to destroy ammunition and stores that they could not take with them. But large 
quantities of these were not destroyed. Now, during the attack, sometimes, a lot of times, you'll get soldiers saying, you know what, screw this, we're leaving. Mm -hmm. They'll desert. They really didn't have much of that at all. But once they were ordered to retreat, 234 of them had had enough, and they left. They deserted. Now, casualty counts from the British side from the 6th to 11th of September. 37 dead, 150 wounded, and 57 missing. Macomb reported the 37 killed, 62 wounded, and 20 missing. And these were losses for just the regular U.S. Army. So Macomb wrote to his dad that the American loss in the land battle was 115 dead, 130 wounded, which it suggests a huge amount of casualties among the militia and volunteers, since the official report before was just from official U.S. Army troops. Right, right. No, nobody that was tagging along out of a sense of national pride. Yeah. So, McDowell's victory stopped the British in its tracks. But Provost had achieved what the U.S. government had been unable to do up until this point in the war. You know what that is? Um, actually make a little headway? No, he brought the state of Vermont into the war. <laughs> well, now he wouldn't did it. So the British used their victories at the Battle of Bladensburg and the burning of Washington to counter American demands during the peace negotiations up until this point. But the Americans were able to use their victory at Plattsburgh to demand exclusive rights to Lake Chaplin and deny the British rights to the Great Lakes. And then the British failure at the Siege of Baltimore, which was a couple days later, denied the British any advantage that they could use to make demands for territorial gains in the Treaty of Ghent. So the failure at Plattsburgh and a lot of other valid complaints of which we have covered in great detail here resulted in Sir George Provost finally being relieved of command in Canada. It's about time. Now, when he returned to Britain, his version of events was accepted at first. And as was customary when you lose a ship or was defeated, Captain Prigg and the surviving officers and men of his squadron faced a court-martial, which was held aboard the HMS Gladiator at Portsmouth. The court commended Prigg and honorably acquitted all of those that were charged. And then dispatches of Sir James Yao were published at the same time and placed all the blame on Provost for the defeat. Provost turned around and demanded a court-martial so he could clear his name. But, as we have heard before, he died before it could be held. So technically, never found guilty. And never found innocent. <laughs> well, I think his legacy would like us to think of it as the former. So Alexander Macomb, he was promoted to Major General and became Commanding General of the United States Army in 1826. Thomas McDowell was promoted to captain, and he was given an honorary rank of Commodore for his command of multiple ships in the battle. 
and he is remembered as the hero of Lake Chaplin. Now, to honor the American commanders, Congress struck four congressional gold medals, which was a record at this time. These were given to Captain Thomas McDowell, Captain Robert Henley, and Lieutenant Stephen Casson of the U.S. Navy, and to Alexander McComb. And McComb and his men were also formally given the thanks of Congress. That is the Battle of Plattsburgh, which is more of the same of what we've come to, to expect of Provost. <laughs> Do nothing. Retreat at the first sign of trouble but looked good while doing both. Yeah. He was a guy. <laughs> he was that commander. Like, I know we, we all see those folks on the road that have those, you know, lifted, dually, you know, F-350s. And you have opinions about folks with that. But his was a ship. He even named it to the Confidence. And he probably painted racing stripes, thinking it'll go faster. That was the kind of man he was. <laughs> yep. So let's move over to the Atlantic. Finally, something where the U.S. Navy does stuff. Well, they did. We just went over a bunch of stuff that they did. Well, fair enough. Fair enough. Finally, something where the U.S. Navy is not having to work hand in hand with militia members that don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so we're going to do a little short battle between the USS Essex and the HMS Alert. So this took place on August 13th, 1812, between, again, the light frigate USS Exit, which was commanded by Captain David Porter, and the HMS Alert, which was captained by TLP Langharn. Is that... TLP short for anything? Two little pittance, Langhorn? <laughs> oh, somebody's parents didn't like him. So Porter later said, quote, With so trifling a skirmish, Alert became the first American capture of the war. The battle itself lasted eight minutes, during which Essex fired only one broadside. He kept his gun ports closed, making... Langhorn believed that Essex was just a merchantman, which gave him the confidence to maneuver his ship within pistol shot of the Essex, which in turn, well, she ran out her cannonades and devastated the alert. So he kept with the practice of the times and allowed Langhorn to sail his ship to Newfoundland so he could disembark his crew. And then he was honor bound to surrender the alert to the American authorities in New York. And then the alert remained in United States service until 1829. Now, what happened in 1829? More than likely, she was decommissioned. All right. Achievement unlocked. Easy victory. Yeah, a fun note. A shipment of brown bass sea service muskets was found on alert. And they went and armed the American Marines at Washington and Boston Navy Yards with them. They liked them better, actually, because of how large a caliber they were, and they had longer bayonets. Oh. And then shorter barrels. <laughs> well, and considering the uh, reload time of muskets, that bayonet length actually would matter quite a bit. And remember, this was a very close quarter battle. 
with the Washington and the Navy Yards. Yep. So bayonets are a good thing. I was going to say, even nowadays. I don't think we really do much hand-to-hand. I haven't heard much hand-to-hand action lately. As the cinematic masterpiece Starship Troopers states, Observe, the enemy cannot use their hand to squeeze the trigger when impaled with a knife. Yeah, but remember, they were also fighting bugs. (laughs) Well, that was after boot camp. And they had shoulder-mounted nukes. Okay, well, okay. We didn't have that yet. I don't think we do still. The Davy Crockett is still a thing in theory. Okay. (laughs) So next up, we have the USS Constitution versus HMS Guerrero. So they they fought approximately 400 miles southeast of Halifax. This was a early battle just after the war had broken out and would actually prove to be very good on American morale and an important victory. So when the war broke out, the Royal Navy had 85 vessels in American waters. And the U.S. Navy was pretty much a frigate navy and only had 22 commissioned vessels. The main strength of the U.S. Navy was a squadron of just three frigates and two sloops of war, which were based in New York. And then a week after the war was declared, the Secretary of the Navy sent orders to Rogers, who commanded this fleet, to cruise off of New York and also to Captain Isaac Hall, who commanded the Constitution, to join Rogers. Now, Rogers, he set out to sea immediately. He got underway immediately when he heard the declaration of war. Okay. Which was before he could receive Hamilton's instructions. Because, you know, he feared that if he didn't get underway immediately, he might be blockaded by the superior British fleet. That's a pretty fair concern if you're outnumbered pretty much four to one. Right. So he figured that by sailing immediately, he might be able to catch some isolated British ships before they could build up fleets. And he did encounter the frigate HMS Belvedero, but it escaped, which was helped in part by bursting cannon on the USS President, which hurt Rogers. Oh. So then Rogers crossed the Atlantic, hoping to catch a British convoy that was very valuable from the West Indies. The weather was bad, though, throughout the entire voyage, and this weather made Rogers miss the convoy. But he did catch her seven small merchant vessels. I mean, you'll take what you can get in wartime. Right. So, after hearing about that encounter, Vice Admiral Herbert Sawyer who was the commander of the Royal Navy's North American station based at Halifax. So he dispatched a squadron under Captain Philip Bowes very broke to go after Roger's squadron. Broke's squadron had the 64-gun ship of the line HMS Africa, the frigates Shannon and Alias, Belvedere and Geary. So they forced the British to concentrate this force in one place, allowing Rogers to make it possible for large numbers of American merchant ships to reach other ports without being captured. 
So the Constitution was at Annapolis. She was collecting a fresh crew. So she was unable to sail for three weeks at the outbreak of the war. And her captain, Isaac Hall, was able to put out to... When her captain, Isaac Hall, was, was able to get underway, he headed for New York following the orders of Secretary Hamilton. So he was near New York, July 17th of 1812, and he saw four ships sailing west, with another one heading straight for him. Now he thought this could be Rogers, but he decided to be cautious. So he ordered signal lights to be shown at the approaching ship. When they didn't identify themselves, he ordered the Constitution to keep her distance and wait for daylight so he could assess the situation better. So this ship was the Guerriere. He was, they were rejoining Broke's squadron after becoming separated. So Captain James Richard Dacres soon decided that the Constitution was a hostile ship. And then at dawn, he sighted four other British ships. Now his signals to them weren't answered. So he thought he was trapped by Roger's entire squadron. So he put as much distance between himself and the other ships as he could. So that ended up making him miss a chance to trap the Constitution. Do we know why the uh, British squadron didn't answer his uh, hailing? They might not have seen it. I mean, sometimes the simplest explanation is the most logical. So the, the weather that day was very light winds. And occasionally they, it ended up being becalmed. So the Constitution led the British squadron in a chase. The Constitution lowered her boats to tow the ship. When during the becalmed areas, they would lower their boats and mm -hmm. try to tow the ship with oars. Right. And Broke ordered the boats from his entire squadron to tow the Shannon. So trying to pull away, Hall ordered 10 tons of drinking water to be dumped overboard. But the British squadron continued to gain on the Constitution. So the Constitution's first lieutenant, Charles Morris, then suggested kedging to haul the ship along. I know. Go ahead and ask. Okay, wh what is kedging? Because I was going to say, we've, we've done towing with boats. We've used sweeps. So what it is, is when you throw your anchor out and then you pull it back in to drag your boat forward. That sounds like an incredibly inefficient way to move. Well, when you're becalmed, any way to move is moving. And when you have a squadron of British ships coming after you, you want to move. I, I get it. But you can't be throwing an anchor that far. And wouldn't the boats be a more efficient way to pull it along? This was in conjunction with that. But doing this did allow the Constitution to draw away from the Shannon. Okay. I mean, if it works. I'm just wondering how you throw an anchor. Very carefully. <laughs> Team lift. <laughs> use your legs, not your back. Oh, back then you use your back all the way. <laughs> we didn't know about... Uh, safe lifting practices. So, four heavy guns fired at the British because Hull had shifted them to point right aft, which allowed them to keep the British from doing the exact same tactic. 
Now, later in the afternoon, the wind returned and the Constitution was able to increase her lead. And then the British ships gained slightly during the night. But the next day, Constitution drew away again. Now, the chase lasted another day and night until the British ships were out of sight. So following his escape, Hull went for Boston to replenish all the drinking water he dumped overboard. <laughs> and then set out on August 2nd to raid British merchant ships off Halifax and the, at the mouth of the St. Lawrence River. And then turning south towards Bermuda. So the Constitution chased down an American privateer, the decanter. And her captain told Hull that he had just escaped a British frigate the day before. Brooke had sailed after the West, a vulnerable West India convoy, assuming correctly, actually, that Rogers was also looking for it. So three weeks after losing the Constitution and having seen their convoy safely into British waters, he decided to return to New York. And the Guerriere was ordered to proceed to Halifax for a refit. So on August 19th at 1400, the Constitution sighted a large ship to leeward and bore down on it to investigate. The weather was described as cloudy and it had a brisk wind. So the ship that they were investigating turned out to be the Guerriere, whose crew recognized Constitution at the same time the Constitution recognized them. <laughs> and both ships went to general quarters. They shortened sail to quote-unquote fighting sail, which means just the top size and jibs only, and the Constitution closed. Decares first moved to fire a broadside, and it fell short and then ran before the wind for 45 minutes with the Constitution on her quarter. He tried yawing several times to fire broadsides at them, but they were pretty much inaccurate. While a couple of the shots fired from the Constitution, their foremost guns, they, well, they were very ineffective as well. Now, this is where the Constitution's nickname came into effect because one cannonball bounced harmlessly, quote-unquote, off the side of the Constitution. And so a crew member yelled, quote, Huzzah! Her sides are made of iron. Now, once they had closed to a few hundred yards, Hull ordered extra sail, because they wanted to close the distance quickly. De Cares, he did not match the maneuver. And the two ships, they began exchanging broadsides at about a distance of half a pistol shot. And about how far is a pistol shot in ye olden days of 1812? Because if memory serves at the uh, target range, you usually do pistol shooting around 20 yards. So the maximum effective range to, of a pistol would have been about 164 feet. So they were probably around 75 feet away from each other. Yeah, that, that, that's probably a little closer than you want to be if uh, the enemy's firing cannons at you. That's about the length of the nose to tail of a tractor trailer. Mm. But I imagine the Constitution was closing with the intention to board. 
more than likely they were just trying to maneuver to figure out what they wanted to do at this point in time. Oh, doing the old crazy American thing of, let's just go fast, right at them. They'll never expect that. Well, I mean, they exchanged broadsides at this range for 15 minutes. That's a long time of broadsides being this close. So Guerriere suffered a lot more damage than the Constitution because of the Constitution's larger caliber guns and thicker hull. Again, iron, old Ironsides. Gotcha. So really, I was going to say, so really it was more of a case of, in this fight, the Constitution effectively being a weight class above the Derriere. So, oh, yes. so it's a, we can take a prolonged fight at this range. They cannot. Let's just get in there. We'll take a little bit of damage. They're going to take a lot more. Let's get this. Let's blow them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we could take them. Let's do this, guys. So the Guerriers, Miz and Mass fell overboard. And it acted as a rudder and dragged around in circles, which allowed the Constitution to cross ahead of her, firing, raking broadside, which brought down the main mast. Then Hall went to cross Guerrier's bow again, doing another raking broadside. But the maneuver was a bit too close. The Guerrier's bow sprite. Well, it became entangled in the rigging of the Constitution's mizzenmast. So, on both ships, boarding parties were summoned, and musket fire broke out. Now, the bow sprite is that uh, pointy bit, and the rigging associated with it, off the bow of the ship, I assume? Yep, it's that pointy bit at the, at the front. Okay. They kind of like trying to joust each other. <laughs> So, Lieutenant Charles Morris and Captain Dick Craze were both wounded by the musket shots. And only the bowsprit, that was their only link between the two ships to be able to cross. And the sea was very heavy at this time, so nobody could actually go across it. Now, some of the gunners aboard the Guerrier fired point blank into the stern cabin which was Hull's quarters, and ended up setting the ship on fire briefly. Now, the two ships were locked, and then they just slowly went around in circles until they were able to break free. The Guerrier's foremast and mainmast, then they both fell into the sea. De Carres then attempted to set sail on the bowsprite to bring his ship into the wind, but... Of course, when you ram your bowsprite into another vessel, it gets damaged and breaks. Now, the Constitution, she went downwind for a few minutes, repairing damage to her rigging, and then decided, oh, we're coming back. That was round one. That ain't the bell. Yeah. Round two. Ding, 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 ding. So, the Constitution prepared to renew the battle. So Guerriere fired a shot in the opposite direction. So the Constitution, they thought that this was an attempt to signal surrender. So Hull ordered a boat to take the lieutenant over to the British ship. When the lieutenant boarded and walked onto the Guerriere, they, he asked if the Guerriere was prepared to surrender. The captain responded, quote, Well, sir, 
I don't know. Our mizzenmast is gone. Our fore and mainmasts are gone. I think on the whole you might say we have struck our flag. <laughs> I mean, you could always get some uh, midshipmen just to, you know, get on opposite ends of the uh, starboard and port side. Put them on the stern and then just, all right, guys, I need you to shake your arms, but don't lose that Union Jack. We're still in this. What? Their, their, their flag was somewhere in the water. All they had left was an American flag that they they flow sometimes. <laughs> and maybe the French flag or the Dutch flag or, you know, every flag but the one that they were representing. <laughs> <laughs> we, we ha- we're surrendering because we have nowhere to mount our flag. Mm-hmm. So Captain Dickers was escorted aboard the Constitution and Hall refused to accept his sword. He said he could not accept the sword from a man who fought so gallantly. He also ordered that his mother's Bible be returned to him. I don't know. I don't know. I Did somebody steal his Bible and give it to him at a prior engagement? Maybe it's some sort of British fetish? <laughs> I don't know. I... So the Guerrier... Clearly, she was sinking. She had been hit so hard. So they brought the wounded over to the Constitution. Um, Hall found that 10 of these were impressed Americans. So, and Dakers had actually let them stay below decks instead of fighting, instead of making them fight their own countrymen. So, class acts all around. Yeah. Hall... He wanted Guerrier towed in as a prize. And so the Constitution stayed beside the Guerrier during the night. But at daybreak, it was obvious that she could not be salvaged. The prisoners and the American salvage parties were transferred back over to the Constitution at 1500. And the Guerrier was set on fire. And she blew up. So... The Constitution, she was actually capable of continuing her cruise. She really was pretty much undamaged and still had two-thirds of her ammunition. But Hull wanted the American public to have the news of this victory. So he went to Boston ten days later with his news, with, you know, proof, hello, prisoners of war, (laughs) which caused a lot of rejoicing. Because the Guerrier had been one of the most active ships of the Royal Navy in stopping and searching American merchant vessels. So the news of her defeat was very, very satisfying to the American seafaring community. Well, also, I'm not sure how effectively you could do a patrol if you have effectively an entire enemy crew in your brig. Because you can't exactly be slacking on the guard duty. Oh, you only need like one or two guys. Everybody else is locked up. But there'll be a lot more supply. You'll go through your supplies a lot faster. Right. Now, Hall, unfortunately, was never to hold another command, combat command. Just three days before this battle, his uncle, General William Hall, surrendered Fort Shelby to a well, let's just say a very inferior British force. So because of that and the death of his brother, who 
was married and had children, Hull was now duty-bound to support them. So he decided he had to get a commission that would better accommodate his new, quote, domestic responsibilities. So his brother's wife is now his, I guess? It's a thing in some circles. I won't pretend to be the most intimate with the circumstances or the wise, but yeah, in in some circles, you know, if your in-laws, uh, if your brother or sister-in-law, you know, suddenly lose the spouse, they are now your responsibility as well. So marry ugly is what you're saying, so you don't get murdered. <laughs> that is one way to get around that, yeah. Okay. So Hull asked Hamilton, the Secretary of the Navy, mm-hmm. if he could switch commands with Captain William Bainbridge. They had served together during the Barbary Wars, and Bainbridge was the commander of the Boston Navy Yard. Hamilton said yes, so Hull took over the Navy Yard and Bainbridge took the Constitution. So Dakers was released during a prisoner exchange, and he went back to Halifax. And then he was court-martialed, which, as we've come to understand, is the custom in Royal Navy for when you lose a ship from any cause. So he put forward his defense that the Guerriere was originally French. They captured it from the wrench in 1806. Right, right. So it wasn't as sturdy as British-built ship. (laughs) And more importantly, that it was badly decayed. And was actually, they were actually on their way back to Halifax for a refit. And that the fall of the mizzen mast, which crippled the boat, had been due as much as rot as metal damage. There actually was no suggestion that he and his men had not done their utmost or that he was unwise to engage the Constitution. Because at that time, the Na- at that time, the Royal Navy thought that a 38-gun frigate on the British side could successfully engage a 44-gun frigate of any other nation. So because of their belief in superiority, he was acquitted. So I get, I'm not sure if this is still a tradition, but anything goes south if you're a British officer on a ship, you're looking at a court-martial. Doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be found guilty... But you have a trial. But as long as you did your duty, you should be fine. Exactly. Of course, if you are guilty, then you mysteriously die before your court martial. <laughs> as we've seen a few times now. Oh, uh, Provost is going to become a meme for us, isn't he? Yeah. Don't be a Provost. Alrighty, so we're going to go ahead and end it here. We have a lot more to the Atlantic to continue with next week. So, thank you all for joining us. Steven, anything you want to cover before we pull back in port? Well, we'd love to hear what you guys think of our podcast. Feel free to leave a review. The more stars, the better. And if you'd like, we can read it on air. And if you want to reach us, you can do so at... US Navy History Podcast at gmail.com or our new Twitter, USN History Pod. So we shall leave you here while Stephen continues to figure out 
if his bilge pump on his computer keeps going out or not. Well, worst case scenario, I, I get a few cats to be in there too to get rid of any sort of vermin infestation there might be as well. Oh, the rat's chewing on the wires. Of course. Can't have that. Well, guys, we wish you fair winds and following seas. See you next time. Take care. U.S. Naval History Podcast. Departing. Departing.